Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. What does it mean to be media savvy? Rather, what does it take to be media savvy in an age of post-truth, post-facts and alternative facts? What is the truth in this post-factual era and who defines it? How can we achieve basic media literacy in an age when telling lies has become a method to undermine our faith in facts? What constitutes productive criticism and healthy skepticism of the press and the media? And what is an unfounded attack? I spoke with Pamela Newkirk about ways of maintaining the right kind of skepticism toward the media in an age when the independent press is under constant attack. Pamela Newkirk is a widely published journalist and scholar who holds an appointment as professor in the Department of Journalism at New York University. Her most recent book is the award-winning Spectacle, The Astonishing Life of Ota Benga, which examines how pernicious racial attitudes contributed to the 1906 exhibition of a young Congolese man in the Bronx Zoo monkey house. Her articles on media, race, and African-American art and culture have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Guardian, The Nation, and Art News. Welcome. I'm really thrilled to have Pamela Newkirk here today. Hi, Pamela. How are you? Such a pleasure to be here. It's really wonderful that you're making time, taking time out from writing to yeah. be part of this podcast. And I wanted to start by asking you, you're a practicing journalist, you're a reporter, you're a scholar, and you've written books about the press, about the function of the press, about whether it actually does the work of representing society to itself accurately. Mm -hmm. So one of your first books was about whether newsrooms actually capture America and reflect it back in mm -hmm. fair and accurate ways in The Veil, which was black journalists and white media. But then you've done a huge range of other works. In several of the podcasts I've had earlier, people touched on the press and mm -hmm. said freedom of the press is a critical dimension of a working democracy. Mm -hmm. And as we know, in the Trump presidency, this comes up every day. So I would be curious, as I said, you're a journalist, award-winning journalist, a writer, a scholar, and a teacher. How do you approach this question with your students today? You are coming in and saying, we want to be journalists, yeah. we want to do good. The thing is, as bad as Trump has been towards the media, he's been good for the media in the sense that I think people had for so long taken the news media for granted and thought of it as something that you don't really need. And now you see that it is one of the guardrails for our democracy, that without the news media, this man <laughs> would just get away literally with murder or whatever right, else, whatever right. other crime <laughs> that he had in mind. So I think it is why you've seen circulation surging at places like the New York Times and the Washington Post, because people are finally appreciating the role of a free press and a democracy. So, you know, I think that the media kind of fell down on the job, which is how he became <laughs> president, that along with the other things that I think Mueller will tell us, right, how he became president. But certainly the news media was complicit by not really drilling down on who this man was and just treating him as a ratings grab, like someone 
who helped their ratings, right? Because people saw him as entertaining. And, and he was a reality TV star, he, he, 16 seasons. People he, loved him. He knew how to do that, right? I'm not sure if the press, the media, sort of traditional journalism, whether people in the New York Times actually knew how popular he was. Right, oh, and I think also they could not believe that people would take him seriously, so they didn't take him seriously until it was way too late. I think less than New York Times than cable news. He was on 24-7, around the clock, without any real objective engagement on who he is, what his background was, why this could be a problem. And when you said people took the press for granted a little bit. Oh, my gosh. It's here, it's free, it's protected, the government cannot censor anything. Right, and then you have a man who calls the press the enemy of the people, right? And you have journalists being treated in this country the way they're treated in, like, the worst autocracies. And I think people began to see, oh, my God, like, this can happen here. And it's happening, right? And this is a difficult realization for anybody that our freedoms are really precious, but we don't really... Right. And I think democracy is something that you just take for granted in this country. You don't think you have to work for it. It's just like air, right? Right. Which we also take for granted. Right. Right. (laughs) Right? Clean air. And clean water. (laughs) And like all of these things that we've taken for granted, we now see how precious each and every one of those things are and how now you have to fight to preserve any of it, whether it's democracy or clean water or a free press. If there is any silver lining to what we've experienced over these two years, that is the silver lining that I think Americans now see all of these things that we've taken for granted for so long as precious things we need to fight for. And now we really are fighting to bring back a semblance of, you know, sanity and, you know, decency into our public sphere. He seems to have walked into an opportunity also. I don't think it was just Trump himself. I think the press or let's say the media was going through what they call major disruptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's a symptom of a lot of our problems. He's not. He didn't create these problems, right? Right. Like the rise of entertainment media, which is Trump news and, you know, the dismantlement of the news industry and just Americans just not being serious, like not not being grown up about about the things that and then being given and handed a phone. Exactly. In some ways, this country likes entertainment. We all do like entertainment. I know. But there's an addiction that. Yeah. And that you can just like not really have to pay attention. I mean, we have the worst record on voting, like the percentage of people who vote, the percentage of people who really pay attention. And, you know, as much as people will slam any network for, you know, how much they devote to entertainment over news, they do it because they're reflecting what the public is actually gravitating to. Well, that's an interesting question. Right. In some ways, do you think the media, let's say, writ large, the press could take the role and shape the appetite of the people say we actually will give you something yeah if it wasn't just a crass capitalist you know endeavor that's what it would do that's what it once did right there were just hours that were protected as like this is news and it's not just for advertising and ratings it's because it's in the public interest right right that's gone 
you know, and now it's give the people what they want. It's like the lowest common denominator. And then, you know, people do get addicted to that kind of garbage and news becomes like this little incidental thing that you don't really need but it's you an know. interesting thing it used to be an hour they used to say this oh is actually God. good for the country and Fact people took it based. seriously right walter yes. cronkite and like people tuned into news but once they saw oh but you can get more people if you give them right. the apprentice or if you give them you know america's next top model or whatever then became just crass, just just about the bottom line. Like and People go into journalism, though, when you talk with your students. They're going in not to just get ratings, right? Although I think that's become a really complicated No, I don't factor. think students... I think students go into it for all the right reasons. Not all of them, but those who really want to be real journalists, not entertainment reporters who are not really journalists. But they go into an industry where it's going to make them... <laughs> You know, they're going to have to kind of mold themselves to that industry. So that's where the problem is. It's not how they go in. It's how they come out. Right. <laughs> right. You've worked out when you said Walter Cronkite used to be the country's father. He tells us right. the story what's going on every night. You've also written about how that wasn't always a totally oh, no. accurate. No, no, no. Article. And I don't mean to kind of romanticize the old media. I've been one of the fiercest critics of the media about its lack of diversity, about the way it has devalued not only people of color, but the poor and, you know, women. And so you have all of these perspectives that have never really gotten a proper forum in our mainstream media. So no, I've been a critic of the media and and the days of Walter Cronkite were also the days of almost all white newsrooms, right? So right. <laughs> so, so, so there's that you, tension. Exactly. Yeah. How do you keep a critique in the name of making a better right. newsroom right. versus people are saying that's all fake in any case? Now you're going into a whole different right. thing, right? But, because I've been a critic of the media and wanting it to live up to the best ideals of journalism, right? You know, which means to fairly reflect the population that you're reporting on, right. to to do those things. But now we're entering this new zone, this like twilight zone, when we're talking about fake news. Like, right. there's always been some fake news, but no one ever thought the New York Times or the Washington Post went out of its way. I mean, as much as I would criticize any of them, and I have, I've never thought, oh, they're all about fake news. Right. right. It's about maybe in incomplete coverage and not being comprehensive enough, not reflecting a diverse population, but fake. I mean, yeah, you have those instances of a Jason Blair or, you know, a Mike Barnacle or someone who actually fabricated stories, but the industry has dealt with those people. Right. Like, they get right. booted out. Like, right. well, right. Right. Barnacle came back, actually, so I, sh I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but it's interesting to make this distinction for people, actually, that there's a way to critique and hold the press accountable. Say the standard should be to Precisely. accurately represent the society, not to distort stories right. in a way that actually misleads the public. Right. Then there are outliers of people who really fabricated a story. Exactly. Out, but the outliers They're were actually exposed. Right. There was a reckoning. There exactly. Was, it, it was considered a crisis for journalists. Precisely. And now you have a president who's sort of like latching on to any of the criticism of the media and 
just like throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? right? It's like all fake, except what he wants you to believe, right? (laughs) Well, and I think we've gone through uh, two years now of this, and I think um, we are slowly learning that every morning President Trump wakes up or he sleeps and then tells us what to think about and talk about for the day. Precisely. And there's a little bit of this being addicted to him. And it's a problem because I think, again, it's mainly cable news that they're allowing him to set the news agenda, right? Mm -hmm. There's way too much focus on what he tweeted, you know, each and every day, all throughout the day, and not on investigating what needs to be investigated. I think that was the problem during the election, too. It was all based on, like, headlines, and there was very little of the kind of investigative journalism that we're now seeing, you know, a little late, (laughs) but we are seeing great journalism. You know, at all of the major papers, the Washington Post, uh, in particular, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, they now they're doing the work of giants, you know? Right. And it took this. Do you think they were on their way or were they trying to figure out how to no, live in the digital world? No, or? I just think that they didn't take him seriously. I mean, mm-hmm. you remember the election where everything was about Hillary and her email. Yes. And, I mean, part of it was what, journalists were told by people like Comey. He didn't tell journalists that Trump was also under investigation. Right. 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 But there was also this lack of the sense of history. Like Trump had a track record and it just was not properly put before the American people in any sustained way. Right. Instead, it was like every day, like it was a circus. And right, it's a spectacle, and we America we love America spectacle. loves spectacle. Love a circus, right? We, will, we also love a bit of a fight, right? So there was a kind of fight, but it seems and there's something about him that people have always loved. Like through all of his bankruptcies, there was this idea of Trump. It was almost like with Gotti, yeah. you know, right. he was like this mafiosa, and like people glamorized him. Like right. there was just something about him. That people. Yeah, I also think the American story of, a, let's say, the great tradition of a con man, which is Melville wrote about this, or people yeah. Gatsby, in a way that these people who are larger than life, you know, there's not that much behind the curtain, kind of, mm-hmm. but we love to be seduced into thinking there's this enormous power, authority. Yeah. But he was always able to spin his own tale, like he was this man who made it from very little. He was given millions of dollars right but he he had this whole intrigue and this fable of this self-made multi-millionaire or billionaire whatever he told people and they believed it it's like he was sort of the perversion or is the perversion of the american dream right Right. that you start out and just like through your force of you know your will and your smarts you could just make it you know, and it was always a lie, but people like that story. People like this, and it's interesting that even serious journalism felt they had to then compete with him because he figured out something which I always found perplexing that you could donate money to campaigns for TV ads, and he bypassed all of that and said, I'm going to go straight to the people through social media. Right. And he figured out a way, and there's not going to be an election in the future anymore where that won't be the major factor. 
So he figured out how to reach the people directly. But it's interesting you say, I mean, Obama did that too. Right. I think right? it's just... He just we just got amped up media in eight years. We got more. He perverted it. I mean, and got help from you know Russia, <laughs> as it <laughs> right, turns out, right? right? right. And Facebook, right, and right, right. I mean, so there were a lot of things that just and like many more fell people, apart. I think, were on me- social media. No by question. That time. So he somehow that's what I mean. There's a no confluence question. of factors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like a perfect storm for yeah, him, right? The, the collapse of the up. media and the rise of cable news, and you know, just that twenty four seven, you right. know. And I think you're saying there's a silver lining. I think there was a bit of a credibility issue after the election that most mainstream media predicted a different result. So people thought, what do you actually know? How do you miss all this? Not that anybody all, could really predict the future, but I just although wonder. Although the only, like I do think the media made it seem like it was in the bag for Hillary, which was always weird to me because the polls didn't show that. Right. The polls showed that it was a close race. So, I mean, that's what the polls showed. So it was people in the news media who had this, like, whatever that was based on, this overconfidence that even in a close race she's going to win. And that also suppresses her vote. When her voters think that they don't really have to go out because it's already done. Mm -hmm. So the media did not do her any favors by doing that. But the polls were not wrong. Right. They showed a close race, and it was a very close race. But this seemed to be in liberal established media, and then there was a sense of shock and reckoning, and it took yeah, quite yeah, a yeah. while, and I always thought, well, we don't really have the luxury to be shocked for so long. We should just get on. Now we're in a different situation. Now we have— Although that you, was quite a body blow. It, it's surreal, right, to have a person like that in the White House. <laughs> it's, it's still something it's hard to get used to. That, you know, to go from a Barack Obama, you know, this dignified, uber-intelligent, cerebral person to this, it's like, wow. Right. America. (laughs) Well, and a good part of America thinks that's exciting and correct, and they celebrate him, and they really feel there's finally someone who tells the truth, tells it like it is. I know, but he lies every day, all day. But I think he taps into something that... Well, he's tapping into rage. He's tapping into rage, into a fact that the country has been manipulated into being politically correct, which is a dog whistle or key word for saying, oh, we now have to recognize that other people exist. Right. Imagine that. It's it's really on that level that (laughs) you suddenly have to say. Now, now it's women's rights and people of color and you can't just call people what you want to call them and you can't. Yeah. Yeah. And this has been interesting that that rage is that I cannot speak my truth. So Trump sort of embodies it. Finally, I can say these things. And it's more too, right? It's income inequality, right? Which is an issue that cuts across party lines. Right. He tapped into that as Bernie Sanders did. Right. And that Hillary kind of didn't pay attention to that. I mean, because I think that is where Trump, to the extent he got any minority votes, it's on that issue. Right. He spoke to that. On income inequality. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the little people, the so-called little people who've been left out. Right. 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 I think that's going forward. That's still going to be the issue that whoever the Democrats put up or Republicans, if you don't speak to that issue, you're going to lose a lot of people because it's a crisis, really. It's an issue. The other issue seems to be identity politics, which I have found surprising and disheartening that people on the left and on the right attack identity politics as a problem. And in some ways, what they're really saying is that people who are Americans 
really shouldn't speak up for their own rights in a way. Identity mm. politics is almost a code for saying, okay, things have been great, then the Democrats got seduced by identity politics, and now they're talking about all these other identities, right. losing sight of what's really going on. And then there was this discovery in the Times that, wow, Trump voters actually are voting against their economic self-interest and voting for other things. Right. So you thought, wow, it took this long? Right. And people have done this work for it. So I had somebody on, Ian Haney Lopez, who wrote a book on dog whistle politics. And he mm-hmm. said, this has been a steady oh, it's, and it's, systematic it's, way of running um, politics. As American as apple pie. Right. Right. But it was <laughs> funny. There was a kind of discovery in the Times. A study showed that the Trump voters are not benefiting from his policies. Oh, come on. And, and, they didn't do that, did they? <laughs> well, <laughs> that was news to the Times. <laughs> and, and I think what's interesting about this is that the identity politics charge comes from both sides. Of course. I become interested when two sides are sort of joining the fight. The Mm -hmm. same thing happened on free speech for a while. Oh, we're losing free speech in America because the college students are. I know. And And that's not quite right. It's not the story. No. There are all of these ways to kind of suppress the marginalized, right? A way of shutting Mm. down, Mm. you know, taking you out of the the whole discourse of America. Like, who has a right to speak, right? Right. It becomes right. identity, right? Right. And then, you know, white identity, of course, is colorless, seamless. It's not there, but it's there. <laughs> oh, it right. doesn't have to express itself right. in the same way. It's not part of identity politics. It's just normal, it's just the good, norm. wholesome Americans. <laughs> exactly. Like us. And <laughs> everyone outside of right. that <laughs> is like, oh, it's identity right, politics. Right, right, right. It's right. like, but everyone's trying to like be seen and heard, right? Yes. And be a part of this conversation that is America. And Trump seemed to have tapped into something and actually exposed this and said identity politics at white supremacy. And whiteness is something to be immensely proud of. And I think Charlottesville exposed something to people who hadn't really maybe wanted to see what's going on. Oh, here. people I think white America is perpetually in denial about the fault line of race in this country. I mean, remember we were just post-race, right? Um, <laughs> wasn't I'm that just like? Wasn't when, when it that just like two years two ago? Years ago? <laughs> like we were. Now you, now you don't even Obama. hear that, right? But not so much anymore. Not so much, not so much, right? Because we weren't then. We aren't now. And you know, I right. think it's part of what America is, right? We've always had these battles over. Who's American? Like, who's really American, right? right? And it's not just with, like, African-Americans and Latinos. It happened with the Irish. It happened with Italians. Right, when they were not white yet. When they were not white. It happened with Jews. It happened with Greeks. It happened with, I mean, it's an American (laughs) tradition that that everyone gets hazed, you know? And then as more of these groups were able to morph into whiteness, then they become part of that mob, you right. know, that's trying to shut everyone else down. Ex- immediately identify somebody else as other. Exactly. And this pattern goes on. No, it's- so part of the silver lining maybe is that we don't have to hear about how post-race we are and that we still have so much work to do on all of these issues of race, of gender, of income inequality. And the income inequality, I think, that's the thing that Trump, he managed to use race to kind of cover up that deep problem that cuts across mm-hmm. race, you know, geography. Mm-hmm. Like if there's someone out there who can tap into that right. in a way that shows how we have so much more in common, so many more common causes to fight right. together, 
then these ridiculous issues over skin color and, <laughs> and, well, and, and who's really American. And they've become political tools. So Well, yeah, this, and they work. So I mean, to it, have solidarity with white people rather than with people who are in the same economic situation right. with Latinos or blacks or anybody exactly. else who lives your life, but rather say, I'm going to identify across racial lines with people who have nothing to do with me socioeconomically, right. but to cut apart that kind of solidarity. right. 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 So, and, I mean, sadly, it's so effective. It's a breakdown of our education system. Like, there are so many things you right. can point to that would explain where we are right now because it's like people have lost the ability to reason. You see a man, a billionaire or multimillionaire, whatever he is, because we haven't seen his taxes. Right. We don't know what Probably he is. Not a billionaire. <laughs> right. <laughs> but so the first thing he does is he gives this major tax cut to the super rich. Right. right. Now, how does that not set off alarms? Like, maybe I was wrong to support him. Yeah, it hasn't really... It hasn't. Uh, you don't uh, see his numbers really dip that much. Numbers you know, are pretty stable, it sounds. Pretty stable with his and base. And the Republican senators certainly are cheering this on. And because they're, that's what they wanted, too. So it's it's so sad, you know, that Americans are unable, so many Americans are unable to see through it clear-cut con (laughs) it's like how how do you think the press can help there because i do think we've also entered an age of distraction i think it's i don't think see the problem is his base doesn't look to the press like so how could the press they've already been disqualified as fair arbiters of you know what's going on right and to the extent they're looking at news media they're, they're watching fox which doesn't always tell them what they should know about, you know, their economic situation and, right. you know, because they've been sort of cheerleaders for Trump. And it's not it's not helping our democracy. So there's a silver lining that there's more awareness that actually people maybe want to understand things. And maybe we're also lulled into a kind of complacency, say, oh, the press works. We have freedom of the press. We're post-racial. Things are... I don't Fine. think people are saying that. No, that not often anymore at all. Anymore, right? Not anymore at all. Right, but they were right. maybe for a moment. Oh, thinking, they were you know, absolutely took things for granted. Right, complaints and right. Oh, it doesn't work this way. It doesn't work that right, way. And right, now right. they wake up and realize, oh my god! Well, and and they're realizing there are all these things that could be taken apart that we took oh, for granted. All, all of our norms. environmental protections or everything is just being slowly just dismantled. The judiciary system that all these judges can be appointed, rammed through really quickly without a process, really. And remember the talks about Merrick Garland, how outrageous it would have been for Obama to put in a recess appointment. It would have been unbelievable compromise of the presidency. Oh, no, the hypocrisy uh, is just off the rails. (laughs) It's just not to be believed. The the level of hypocrisy, it's stunning, actually. It's stunning. But there I think the press has a problem because by continuing to expose it, then Trump just says, that's just fake news, that's fake news. Well, that's what I'm saying. And they're biased against But his base, they're unable to discern. They listen to him. They believe him. So that's a problem. It's a problem, right? It's a problem. Another silver lining, though, Fox News is starting to report on some of these investigations, and they're beginning to hold him accountable. So it may get through, actually. There's a sense in which if it builds enough, there's momentum, and then there are now, as we've seen, there's been indictments, people are going to prison. Exactly. I I actually think that registers for people in a different way. Yeah. 
I mean, you still have people from the White House on the media oh, well. saying they confess to things which are not crimes. Right. And you think no one would really They're do that voluntarily. <laughs> and go to prison. Right. But maybe something is seeping through that... Yeah, I think it's the whole facade is cracking. I've always thought that this could not be sustainable because if this is sustained, America is gone. The country that we know it to be will no longer be. And I just wasn't willing to go there. So I am somewhat heartened by some of the recent developments, and I'm heartened by what the news media is doing now. I was happy that Trump canceled the Christmas party because I don't think journalists should have been there anyway. Well, this is frankly for a non-press person. So I'm not a journalist. I'm not a press person. For people outside, it is confusing to watch the it's, briefings. It's very so confusing. So Acosta or when April Ryan, Yamiche Alcindor, you know, Abby Phillips right. was basically harassed, right. demeaned, insulted. But they keep going. It, they keep going, but the rest of the press stands there. That's and what I a, thought. It's, if it's someone how, insults one of my team, everyone should walk out. And what I think from the outside is hard to understand don't the people in the press corps feel a solidarity with one another, or are they competing for a story? So that's very hard to watch when someone is being demeaned uh, yeah. or insulted or I, brushed off. I don't even know why they go. I really, I, and I was a Capitol Hill reporter, so I know like how access is everything. But when you have an administration that every day is lying to you, Jay Rosen, my colleague here, says, yeah. send the interns. I totally agree. He did write that. So Jay has this kind of proposal of how to respond. Send he wrote that very early. He wrote very that two years early. ago. He said, but he send the, totally the experienced reporters to the periphery and send the interns to the press briefing. The which journalists should be doing investing. They should be reporting it out. They're not getting any truth in those press but briefings. But there's a weird spectacle that we watch this yeah. and then you know, it gets replayed to us on Saturday Night Live and all sorts of skits. But we watch it and there's something... Horrible. That, it's horrible. And he singles out black women, yeah. which we see over and over. Right. And then I thought, why don't they all walk out? I asked Floyd Abrams, who was one of our First Amendment yeah, experts, yeah, yeah. a year, two years ago here in the journalism department. I said, what would happen if Trump didn't hold press briefings anymore? He said, oh, that'll never happen. That'll never happen. I said, is there a legal or constitutional obligation to talk to the press? He said, it'll never happen. But if he discriminates only against Muslim reporters, for example, we would have a great case. And I said, but Professor <laughs> Abrams, is a good case for you something you're excited about or we could win? But what if he doesn't have a press briefing? What could you do? And he just said, it won't happen. But now he excludes or ignores questions from certain people. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying you share my kind of befuddlement. I said, Well, Why? no news comes out of those briefings except for the spectacle, right? Yes. So... I don't see what the point is. If you're a journalist, why are you there? Right. Like, what are you getting out of that? You're being insulted, but are you getting any news? And is this benefiting our democracy to see this spectacle? Would our time and their time be better served if they were out there actually reporting news mm -hmm, that we can mm -hmm. use? Like, what's happening in those agencies? That's what I want to know. Like, what's happening right. with our tax dollars? Right. Giving him that airtime, yeah. you know, to just lie, and then the media is repeating his lies. Some of them are beginning to say their lies, but they were just like giving all of that oxygen, like right. all of his ridiculous claims. Yeah. They were just every day just reporting them as if 
they had any validity. Right, or the next day say maybe it wasn't quite but accurate it, but, and you think but, it's a lie. But it already took hold, right? It took right. flight. It fed his base. So I don't see what good is coming of that. And so they shouldn't go, maybe. Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I mean, imagine what a pickle he would be in if he kept giving these press briefings and no one showed up. And instead, they were reporting the things that he's trying to take attention away from. Well, that's what's strange to me, that he uses the media and sometimes what you're saying, they could not just be manipulated. Right. I've watched entire campaign rallies on CNN, live broadcast. Unbelievable. Oh, wow. Actually, I don't think he's paying for that. And I'm watching two hours of a rally in Pensacola that I thought, I'm not sure if anybody else gets this or gets it. This was after the election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they kept doing it. And it wasn't really They just stopped doing that. They just stopped doing it Just this past few weeks, they haven't been airing his rallies covered, like wall-to-wall What do you think of all the new media, Vox, Vice, etc., all these things, medium, these things that are coming up? And I think a lot of younger people are consuming news in this way. Mm -hmm. I I have teenagers at home. They will never, ever read a printed paper. My son reads the sports pages. Never. No, they, but they don't even believe in it. It's no. not environmentally sound. No, it's, it's, it's not a like they have thing all. That dad, <laughs> dad, daddy has this thing. It's yeah. odd. It's awkward. But it's, you know that the weird thing is, you know, people talk about millennials. Oh, they're not reading. They're they're reading. Every oh, they're reading bit everything much. online. <laughs> they're reading a lot. They're just not making a distinction between an article that came from the New York Times and something that came from Vice and something that came from Vox and right. something that came from Fox. And right. Like, <laughs> right. So right. There are right. no right. walls, right? And how do you recreate that, this, this gatekeeping function or this editorializing you know, function? I, I think media literacy is something that is so important it's now more than ever. I always thought it was important, but there needs to be media literacy brought into the schools because I don't think people... People, adults or kids, have a way of discerning fact from fiction, oh. what has validity, what... I mean, I, used I don't to, think people have I any anything, sense of that. If it's printed in a book by a press that I recognized in a university library, I thought, okay, this is a fact. Right. And honestly, but I'm sure now there were many facts hidden that weren't really facts, right. but now... Right. My I last Googled book it. was all about okay. deconstructing all of these So this is a story of, of, of a man who was in 1906... An African imprisoned in the Bronx Zoo, Otabanga. Right. So y- but all of these stories that were written about it in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, in books, turned out not to be true. So what did they so, tell So this doesn't help. So you discovered a story that you couldn't find if you just accessed an archive of the news media. You had to well, find you it could, somewhere else. You could find it, but it was all lies. Yeah, they would say like he, you know, he was there to entertain people, like he was complicit, like he he was part of it. It was like a show. He worked for the zoo. He no one said what really happened and it was all in the archives what actually happened. He was hunted in the Congo, you know, brought back by force and eventually ended up being put in the Bronx Zoo monkey house, but if you looked at all of the sources that I would tell my students to look at, the New York Times, the Washington Post, none of it was true. So this is not so helping. how do you instill this? No, it's good. How this do you is instill? not helping, you know. I'm actually this is not, So when Trump says fake news, like. You, you've been encountering I, fake I news. I cringe because <laughs> it's like, it's not the way he's saying it. Right. 
But when it comes to marginalized figures in history, a lot of it was fake news, right? But I actually think he's tapping into something oh, and he conflates no yes. this. There's a legitimate skepticism toward that Precise, we all should have, even that you toward should our have. own press. Right, right. Freedom of the press doesn't mean I have to believe everything printed in a paper. Right. I should actually be educated to question, to think, exactly. to look at, to compare the news. Right. So... People would read several papers every morning and say, well, I'm certainly not going to get the news from one source. Right. So Trump taps into something, but then you're saying there's a very sharp distinction between your skepticism of an archive and him saying this is all just made up. Right. Right. And what he's saying is made up of all the stories about him. (laughs) You know, the federal prosecutors are making it up. Like everyone, like the whole system is rigged against just him. Like, why would that be? So how do you instill? So that's when it's like crazy. (laughs) I'm really interested in how to instill in students or younger people what you call media literacy or a healthy skepticism. A healthy thing. I need to figure this out for myself. Right. Rather than a kind of, I don't believe anything, yeah. and just get to the next story. Which is see. what people are doing now, right? They don't believe anything, and doesn't even but matter. But honestly, it's becoming very hard because in spite of the fragmentation of the news, there are some things that go viral, and everybody watches the same video. And it's then true. It could even be fake, made up, doctored. Well, as it was during the election, right? A lot of the things about Hillary turned out to be planted right. things on Facebook. Yeah, and we the, all saw it. Right. Even the way when Jamar Costa was in the White House and they slowed down the video, which should be been oh familiar with for dozens oh, of Oh, yeah, but that was just course. outright, yeah. But a lot of people saw the same thing. And, then yeah. it, and I wonder how many saw the second version and said this is you know, it, I mean, it's a good point. It makes it much harder to be media savvy, right, media literate. But I just think there's just a basic inability of people to discern, like, between the New York Times and the New York Post or the, like, there are these major distinctions between, you know, organizations that really do go out of their way to try to bring you a semblance of Mm -hmm. truth and (laughs) what happened and organizations that have a history of being known for fabricating, for stretching, for being sensational. So, I mean, I'm just saying, like, basic media literacy, not... Right. An ability to know if a tape is doctored. I mean, right. what do you have to be for that? But like, basic literacy starts really early and really young. And yeah. I think even kids in school, they'll research a topic, they'll go online, the second or third website. Right. They'll, they'll go copy. to Wikipedia and think yeah. that they did research. Right. Isn't that the truth, Wikipedia? <laughs> no. <laughs> I always thought it's written by people like us. <laughs> well, it is, but it could be anything. Right. Like people make write their own bios and so right. you still need to check it with yeah. a legitimate yeah. source I mean, I sh- it's a guide it should never be a source I, right. I would never allow a student to cite wikipedia yeah. as a scholarly source it's not it's and not vetted right. there's right. no vetting of right. that and you can see it on very contested issues really politicized issue it changes all the time oh, of course you read an article yeah, and they keep on editing and yeah, updating yeah. it because yeah. but this i think is really hard today much harder because yeah. that's what he tapped into. He got this perfect storm. Yeah, he so. did. He did. He got the New York Times on their heels and the traditional, like, old guard, you know, respected publications don't have that patina anymore. You know, they're just as vulnerable as any other news source. So I think that he tapped into that. 
Right. It's a dangerous thing. So where thing. do you get your news? I talked to Patricia Williams last week. She was actually quite interesting talking to and she said, yeah, we have a censorship problem in America, but it's not what people think. He said the people who cry their censorship, they have Fox News, they have all these outlets, they have cable news all day long, and then they start complaining that they can't say all the racist things they always <laughs> wanted to say. <laughs> yeah. She said the censorship problem is the government. So she actually said when... President Trump wants to punish Colin Kaepernick or football players mm-hmm. or Jamel Hill from ESPN and that right. she should be fired. He said, that is a problem. Oh, yeah. That that's a huge problem that he says, I want to deport these people, these players, mm-hmm. for exercising their speech rights. He said, this is the issue. And then I asked her, what do you do for the news? And she said, well, I look at both sides. But I don't look for that long. I can't do hours of it. So she looks at the... I think you have to read pretty widely, you know. And I think that's where even Twitter helps, you know, because you're seeing, you know, depending on who you respect and what they're reading, different articles that if I only read the New York Times and the Washington Post, I would miss because there are so many sources of information. So I think you have to read really widely. And most people don't have time, but that's what I do, right? <laughs> well, and Twitter, to be a journalist, you almost you have to read widely. I changed my Twitter feed the year before the election, so I went on Breitbart News, and then I went on everybody they recommended. Really? So I really just you went Twitter. to the dark side. Yes, and I actually always, for the longest time, I thought Twitter is really just an ugly place because it. Well, was it depends so on who vile. you follow. I followed a lot of people. No, but who, that's why it was vile. But like it I was, don't follow. Them. But I thought it was a little bit useful. Because it's very I useful. Felt this is what people really oh, say no, about no, the no. Obamas. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. this is, and it wasn't one person; it was thousands and thousands oh, yeah, of people. Yeah. I thought, yeah, tens some, of thousands, yeah. and it gets amplified right away. Oh, so yeah, I yeah. thought. This is what's interesting. So even one's own Twitter feed, you tailor to you what you believe is kind of important to know. Oh, yeah, that you want to know. Right. Like, so if you want to cast a wide net, you cast a wide net. If right. you only want an echo chamber, you right. just look at right. the echo chamber, right? right? right. So, but I, that's probably never been different, don't you think? People have always lived a bit in an echo chamber. Demographically, um, they talk to people. Yeah, they agree I with. mean, I think. But you were asking me as a journalist, yeah. like you know, in the old days, going to the newsroom, you start your day reading. In New York, we had four major newspapers then. And so that's your day started reading all four newspapers, the New York Post, the New York Times, the Daily News, and the Wall Street Journal. That's how you started your day. Do you tell your students to read several papers? Do you give them instructions and sort of say, this is what you have to do every morning? Yeah, they have to read the New York Times. Like, I still think they have to read the New York Times, not because I think it's the greatest paper. They have to read the New York Times because that's who people empower that's what people in power are reading. It's helping to set the agenda right. for our country. There are a lot of gaps, right? There are a lot of things that are not covered. Right. They still probably don't have a Bronx Bureau. For a long time, Brooklyn was like not really covered. Now the Lower East Side is covered because of all the commercial, you know, okay. the, <laughs> it's a vibrant commercial strip. <laughs> they follow so the money. <laughs> it's following the money, right? Right. And so. They should look at that, but then they should also look at what's not covered. I'm trying to train journalists to look at where the needs are, right? There are whole, like, populations that are not reflected in the press at all. Their daily lives are just not even thought of. And, and they're probably, in many cases, most directly affected by political of, decisions. All, right exactly. Because they're more vulnerable to any changes. Exactly. So... I mean, luckily, where we are, they get to see different populations up close, 
right? You have Chinatown. Right. We have this like little lab here where they can actually get to have a one-on-one immersion in these communities that they don't see reflected in the press. Right. Okay. You know? So hopefully they'll go out and become journalists who actually capture more of these Yeah, then they have to find a place that really will care because the media has, they've become so commercially driven. I mean, more than ever. It's a problem. Right, right. Do you listen to NPR or any of those public stations? I do. I'm not a big radio listener, but yeah, when I do listen to radio, I listen to NPR. I do have. And anytime you get in the cab, that's that's what you're. That's well, that's what a lot of them have on, which is so great. <laughs> I mean, part of why I'm doing a podcast is because I'm quite interested is that radio is being substituted with podcasts. But radio and is so great and it's, it's so democratic, right? It's, and, that's right. And, and it's it, easy. the reach and, yeah. And people who don't have the luxury to sit down and read because Precisely. they work, it's very hard, they commute, they have kids, right. they have families. But you can sometimes listen to the radio while you're driving. There's yeah, yeah, time. yeah, yeah. You can learn things, so I think. No, I think it's a great I, it's a great medium, and it's wonderful because young people that's what they're gravitating to. That's now. what they're doing. That's oh my what I god, think, they I think, love podcasts. My, both of my daughters, they everybody they, loves they have their playlists of all of these different podcasts, and I think that is a way to get information out there and to get informed. Oh, no question, informed kind of journalism out there in a different way. Yeah, because maybe the format of reading a long story to read four pages, a long article. Precisely. People don't have time. People don't have time, right. Yeah. yeah. So I want to thank you for being on the well, podcast. Thank you. It was great. We do hope that some of your students uh, <laughs> will discover this medium. I'm sure they're already all on it. Yeah. Uh, already. Now we have to let them know about your show. Yes. Yeah. I've had, <laughs> for me, I have to say, part of the podcast is I'm happy to reach a lot of people. It's been gratifying that I've had students on the show who have talked to me about their experiences in different universities nice. in America, about 10 or 12 students, very different experiences. I've learned a tremendous amount. Oh, I think yeah. For me, that's the greatest thing, that you can listen in for a sustained period of time, not a tweet, not just a Facebook right, post. Right, well, you no. know as a professor the dirty little secret is we learn as much from them as they do from us, if not more. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, well, thank you, Pamela. Thank and you. I look forward to having you again on the podcast when you publish your next books. And then yes. And the next book, hopefully next year, and then we'll talk about that. Thank you. Thank you.